following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Good afternoon, my name is Jay Rahman and I'm Professor of Urology at Penn State Health and Chair of the AUA's Office of Education. I'd like to welcome you to another episode in our educational podcast series with this specific episode titled Asymptomatic Bacteria, Atypical Urinary Tract Infection and the Urinary Microbiome, Implications for the Practicing Clinician. Uh, joining me today is Dr. Lenore Ackerman. Uh, Dr. Ackerman is Assistant Professor of Urology and Urogynecology at UCLA, and she's also the current Director of uh, Research for the Women's Health Center and Pelvic uh, Health Center, uh, doing research in the urinary microbiome and its role in lower urinary tract symptoms. Uh, so first of all, Lenny, thank you so much uh, for joining. Uh, really, really appreciate your time. It's great to be here. Thanks again. Um, just for our listeners, I, I want to highlight that this uh, discussion and conversation today is uh, directly related to one of our AUA update series uh, lectures. Um, as many of you may know, the update series has uh, been in print for a number of years now and is actually available through a variety of different lesson formats, whether that be print or listening. Uh, but the podcast here is with Dr. Ackerman, specifically on one of the lessons that she authored, which was on this exact topic. So it's great to be able to get a high level uh, view for her, from her. And, and certainly thereafter, if any of you are interested, I would encourage you to take a deeper dive um, in her lesson that she wrote or any of the other lessons in the series. So Lenny, maybe just let's just start off and, and you know, start, start with the easy question before we go to the more complex and nuanced stuff, but um, what do we, or how do you define a, a UTI? Um, is it clinical symptoms? Is it your analysis, culture, uh, combination? What, what's, what should be our, our you know, criterion for definition? It's, it's actually a much more complicated question than it seems like at first. Um, when we think about UTI, uh, the classics definition has, has been the combination of some evidence of microbiological infiltration of the lower urinary tract, which typically we define with a urine, positive urine culture. Um, and that threshold for positive culture tends to be 10 to the five CFUs per, uh, per ml. And that typically has to occur in combination with some kind of acute change in urologic symptoms. And most uh, sort of specific for UTI are things like dysuria or hematuria. And that may or may not come in combination with some varying degrees of changes in urgency or frequency or newer worsening incontinence. Um, but definitely it has to kind of be both symptoms and evidence of, of some kind of microbes in the urinary tract. So, so simply just having um, a urine culture with evidence of bacteria in the absence of symptoms uh, from what you're describing, that would not be sort of following the definition of what, what a UTI would be. Right. And so that gets at, I think, where the big challenge comes is that we tend to think of, of asymptomatic bacteriuria as that positive culture without symptoms. But when you start to dive deeper into the frequency and prevalence of urinary symptoms, and even just in the general population, that gets to 
that gets complicated because maybe your 22 year old, you know, very healthy young person might say, oh yeah, I have no urinary symptoms. But especially as we get into the older populations, the frequency of things like urgency and frequency incontinence, even dysuria in the absence of really signs and symptoms of, of an infection actually goes way up. And, you know, at least two thirds to three quarters of older adults will endorse at least one of those symptoms kind of fluctuating over time. And very frequently those symptoms may not be constant. And so you can get this fluctuating lower urinary tract symptoms that may or may not occur in the presence of a positive culture. And so this entire concept of, of asymptomatic bacteriuria is kind of deceptive. What we really wanna make the distinction about is a urinary tract infection we define really as that acute onset of that constellation of symptoms that's really consistent with an infection and that really most of the time needs to have either dysuria or uh, hematuria with some other stuff to really qualify as that sort of that symptomatic constellation that's consistent with UTI. Fluctuating chronic lower urinary tract symptoms, urgency, frequency, incontinence that's where things start to get more complicated. And, and if somebody really has those symptoms chronically and has a positive culture, kind of all bets are off. And the more and more that we learn about, about what, what we find in cultures, if we look hard enough, is, is that there's, there's really not that much that we know. And it has to be a clinical judgment about whether you really think, oh, this is a patient with chronic urinary symptoms. But right now, today, they look a lot different than they did, you know, for the past month. And so I think this really may be a UTI. And that brings us back to that, what I think is really the definition of UTI, which is we have that guidance about microbiological evidence of infiltration of the urinary tract and symptoms, but it really has to come back to, to clinical judgment uh, on the part of the provider, being able to say, I'm really convinced that what's happening today is different and new and really suspicious for infection. And I've got this positive culture that seems to back that up. That's probably the patient that I'm gonna think of as having a UTI versus having chronic or fluctuating lower urinary tract symptoms. Yeah, I think the way you phrase that it makes so much sense because I do feel like it's a really tricky landscape when you, when you look at older patients, men and women, but maybe women more than men who have overactive bladder, right? Broadly speaking, they have OAB type symptoms. And right. oh, by the way, somebody checks a culture on them. Yeah. And, and their the presence of bacteria may not be related to their chronic OAB symptoms that are there. And, and therefore sort of teasing out, you know, the need for therapy. Do you need to treat this? Or is this sort of almost, I don't want to say like-like, but unrelated, but but is the presence of bacteria unrelated to their OAB type symptoms? And, and I think you sort of articulated very clearly that it's one of the points that, that's really important to tease out whether the presence of bacteria has really resulted in some demonstrable difference or delta change for the patient. Is that right? right. Am I summarizing that right? Absolutely. And I think you can even take that a step further to even maybe reframe it so that it, it's a little bit more of a, a productive debate within yourself as a clinician. Instead of, I think we have this tendency to see an abnormal lab test 
and to want to make it normal. <laughs> and so there's this huge drive to, especially when you see an older patient that we perceive of as being much higher risk for having significant complications of urinary tract infections, pyelonephritis, urosepsis, these kinds of things, that, that our desire is, oh, I have to sterilize the urine, I have to get them culture negative. But I think that there's plenty of data to demonstrate that the treatment of the bacteriuria in the situation which a patient has chronic or urinary tract symptoms can actually be dangerous mm-hmm. or, or you know, deleterious to that patient. Sometimes that bacteria is actually performing a function in their benefit of protecting them against other infections and, and actually getting rid of it can make things a lot worse. We have this, we, we do have evidence that some of our lower urinary tract systems symptoms may be associated with what's called a dysbiosis. And that's when sort of the normal microbial content of the genital urinary tract gets a little out of whack. But we still don't have reason to believe that treating that with antibiotics actually does any benefit for the patient. And so I think reframing the, the, the thought process when we as clinicians look at a patient and look at their culture in conjunction with their clinical sort of presentation, we have to take a step back and say, not does this patient have an infection, but do I think that a course of antibiotics is really gonna benefit this patient and help their symptoms resolve? Because I think that, that at least for me, helps me look at that, you know, 82 year old with chronic urgency, frequency, and incontinence, and think to myself, am I gonna do them a benefit by giving them antibiotics for this positive culture that I have happen to have in front of me, or might that actually not be a great idea? And more than just what goes on in the urinary tract, there's a growing body of literature suggesting that antibiotics, particularly repeated courses, can actually result in other health consequences outside the urinary tract for patients. And that can be increasing numbers and severity of infections outside of the urinary tract, most commonly things like pneumonia and cellulitis, that is just as likely or even more likely to land that patient in the hospital with sepsis than our positive culture might be. So we, we've talked a little bit about, you know, this, this concept of how, you know, the normal urinary biome may actually sort of complicate how you think a little bit, right? Because I think you've said very clearly that um, if you look, you'll probably find bacteria yeah. In almost everybody, right? I mean, or in most people. Is that, is that a, a correct statement? Absolutely. So what we're learning now is that basically every sort of site in the body has a normal complement of of bacteria, and we call that the microbiome. And within the urinary tract, we we are growing to appreciate the fact that even healthy asymptomatic people will have a wide range of microorganisms, not just bacteria, but fungi, and maybe even some viruses, definitely some bacteriophages and things like that. And that's part of our normal existence. And it may even actually support our normal bladder function. And so that microbiome of the urinary tract or what we call the urobiome really complicates that understanding of bacteriuria or a positive culture, right? So as, and and that plays in with some new technologies that we're seeing sort of being increasingly used in clinical care that are much, much, much better at detecting bacteria than our standard urine cultures. And so, our definition of asymptomatic bacteria has classically been in an uncatheterized patient, a greater than 10 to the five CFUs per ml in somebody without any urinary symptoms qualifies as asymptomatic bacteriuria. But it's sort of that, that, 
that definition doesn't help us all that much anymore because now we're starting to see that if you use PCR, so polymerase chain reaction, or, or what's called next generation sequencing, or even just expanded types of culture conditions where we use a little bit more urine and we culture a little bit longer and we use a little bit different plates or more plates, we can start to see that almost everybody has bacteria in their urinary tract. And so we don't really have a great definition for bacteriuria anymore. And, and all this technology is really shaking everything up and complicated our vision or our idea, our sort of long-held um, beliefs about, about the urine being sterile. So we used to have the definition of UTI that was like any microbial infiltration of the urinary tract, right? But now we know that almost everybody, at least as far as we can see, has some, has some bacteria in their urine. So what does that mean for defining infection? And there is no great answer. So we'll take a step back and just say, I don't have an answer to that one. I think for me, I, there, that clinical part was really important, having the symptoms that I think are convincing mm -hmm. for UTI. There's one other aspect to it, which is, I, you know, I, I tend to think about infection as being not just the presence of bacteria, but really the host response. So in, in, infection is when something goes wrong and there's damage to the host and the host generates an immune response to try to clear out that bacteria. And so personally, I kind of also tend to include in there the idea that if there's no signs of inflammation, meaning you get a urinalysis and there is not a single white blood cell on that urinalysis, positive culture probably doesn't mean anything. Hmm. And, and that's sort of one way of thinking of adding another piece of information into it, which I think is probably part of the foundation of why the AUA guidelines for recurrent UTIs do recommend obtaining a urinalysis with any culture. You want to be able to look at that because I don't know. If you, you know, maybe your staff was a little slow today, the samples didn't get off to the lab, they didn't get put in the fridge, that urine culture has been sitting for eight hours at room temperature all day, and you'll get that scenario where you get a urinalysis back where everything is negative, but the culture is positive. And mm -hmm. that one says to me, ooh, something probably went wrong in the processing of this culture. There's no signs of bacteria, there's no signs of white cells, no signs of red cells on my, on my microscopic urinalysis. This is a, this is not something's discordant here. Something's not right. And I either need to repeat that, or I think I need to use, again, fall back on my clinical judgment about whether I think this is really an infection or not. So, so I'm going to ask you just a few, you know, I don't, you know, maybe I don't want to call them unconventional scenarios, but, but we see them in practice. And the question is, what should we be doing about them? So let's just stay in the, the realm of bacteria. So um, what do we do about you know, culture results that come back with some of these um, atypical bacterial um, organisms, or probably what we see more commonly is, you know, polymicrobial flora, uh, bacterial flora. How should we be thinking about these? What's the clinical significance? Does it, does it change at all based on what you've described to us so far? And then I'll pick your brain on two other ones after that. <laughs> sure. So that's actually, again, it's, I wish there were great answers to these. There just isn't enough evidence right now to give you a solid answer on what is a uropathogen, what is not a uropathogen. You know, when we look sort of epidemiologically at UTIs, the vast, vast majority, greater than 80% of UTIs that we have a positive culture for are E. coli. And that doesn't mean E. coli is always bad. Sometimes you can have E. coli that's actually a helpful commensal. So again, it's sort of, we have to challenge this concept of like, oh, E. coli, I must treat, um, and carini bacteria, I can just leave alone. You know, that, that 
there are lots of, of case reports, case series, um, descriptions from hospital systems about some of these bacteria that typically we had dismissed as being either sort of contaminants or or normal vaginal commensals that may very well cause infections. And I yeah. and one of the there's a couple sort of more emerging ones that are that are interesting I think to sort of keep an eye on. One is something called Aerococcus uh, urinae, and that one is I think is is becoming more recognized because our culture techniques have actually been evolving a little bit. Previously, when it was seen in culture, it was often just dismissed as, as, as streptococcus and thought to be just a skin contaminant. But now that we have better ways of actually recognizing it, it does seem to be a player in, in infections more commonly, particularly in older and more frail adults. And the reason that that one is just worth mentioning is because it typically is, it is very frequently resistant to our common first line antibiotics like Bactrim and a lot of the cephalosporins. It usually does respond to uh, nitropurantrolin, but, um, but, but that's just one thing to keep in mind. But again, it's still not, there's plenty of times that we see aerococcus as a normal sort of component of the urobiome. So it's still really up in the air as to whether that's really a, a pathogen always, or whether, whether sometimes it might just be a normal component. And I think a lot of what we see in urine cultures um, kind of falls in that category of we're not really quite sure. Um, I, again, I would recommend just to fall back on that clinical judgment. I don't think anybody is ever gonna fault you as a clinician for saying this patient really looks like they have a UTI. This is the organism that came out of my culture. I'm gonna treat that. Now, if you do that seven times and there's no change in their in their clinical pattern or course, maybe it's time to step back and say, maybe this isn't the reason why they're having this symptom. Right. But I don't think there's there's uh, you know again, if if your judgment says that's the right thing to do for this patient, then then that's a great place to start. The the mixed cultures or the multiple organism cultures are a lot more challenging, and I think that once again no one is really certain whether polymicrobial cultures are really a thing or not. I will to, to say it, you know, bluntly, there is sort of one school of thinking that says polymicrobial cultures may actually be really, really crucial because maybe it's the E. coli in this culture that's causing the damage, but mm -hmm. the, um, the proteus or the, the, the pseudomonas in conjunction with it is, is, is also having this impact and sort of increasing the drug resistance of the E. coli. And so maybe they really are both important and both need to be treated. That being said, I will, I will just on a personal note, if I see 10,000 mixed, you know, mixed flora, I'm not treating that typically. Mm -hmm. um, and one sort of hint of how to kind of think about that is again, come back to your urinalysis. Are you seeing mm -hmm. a clean catch specimen? And by that, I think that's often a source of confusion when we talk about being a, a contaminated sample when we suspect that that's a vaginal commensal or a vaginal contamination um, you can really look to the urinalysis for some hints there if you're seeing things like mucus mucus shouldn't be in a urine sample unless somebody's mm -hmm. got a diversion or something if you see a really high number of squamous cells then again those are two sort of hints to me that maybe 
a this wasn't necessarily the best collection mm -hmm. and in that case there's nothing wrong with saying to the patient hey i just need to i need to get a real good specimen so i know what i'm treating and so that i can make sure i'm doing the right thing for you and get just a, a, an intermittent catheterized or, or just a clean um, intermittent cath specimen from that patient to be able to really check what you're looking for um, and so, you know, I think that would be my judgment is mm -hmm. if I see, you know, three or four organisms or two, even two organisms, but I look at my urinalysis and there's no white cells or just a couple and, you know, 80 squamous cells, I'm probably repeating that one versus if there's zero squamous cells, a lot of leukocytes um, and, and, you know, a positive nitrite and mm -hmm. E. coli plus two other things. I'm, I very, and they're, and again, and their symptoms are convincing for infection, then that's very, I think very reasonable to, to consider treatment. A lot more is, is sort of coming out in the research world about understanding the interactions between bacterial communities. And I think that's going to give us a lot more information as time goes on. But for right now, again, look for those clues in your laboratory testing. And again, rely on that judgment about whether you're really convinced this person has, has a real infection. What about um, viruses or and, and fungi? Fungi. Um, I, I feel like I see some of these reports where you'll get a urine specimen. It says you know, suggestive of polyomavirus uh, infection. What does this go? Uh, you know, what, how do you deal with that? How do you manage that? Um, I guess there's two scenarios: patient has symptoms and they don't have symptoms. So, what's your thoughts on sort of the the non-bacterial pathogens? Yeah, I mean, the viruses are, are kind of funny because there's a little bit of a, an easy cop out there. One, to say that we don't really know um, how much those are causing symptoms. We, we think that they probably are, at least in selected populations. We, we see a lot more um, uh, viral infections, obviously, in our immunocompromised patients, like transplant patients. Uh, the, the difficulty is we don't really have a lot of treatment for those. And, and, and so most of the time your treatment would really be supportive care. So you, you have a good, um, that's, it's never a bad choice, right? To consider supportive care. Mm -hmm. The one exception in terms of viral urinary tract infections is when you really get a bad hemorrhagic cystitis and you have to think about how to manage that. Um, and really there isn't a great, uh, there isn't a great management of that except our typical supportive care for hematuria. And so again, when you when you think about viruses, you know, it's it's a little bit academic just because mm -hmm. our treatment options really come back to just try to support the patient and help them heal. If the patient is immunocompromised, there may be a discussion to be had with whoever that person's a rheumatologist or say if they're a transplant patient, they're transplant nephrologist about modifying uh, their, their immunosuppression uh, to allow the patient to, to have a little bit more resilience at fighting off that infection themselves. But that's really the limits of what we have available right now. And frankly, there's not a lot of evidence that viruses in immunocompetent individuals is really a significant uh, contributor to UTI-like symptoms. On the fungal side, it's it's interesting as well, and and most of those same things are kind of true. Fungiuria, so so seeing a positive fungal culture, while that can sometimes in certain circumstances be a cause of cystitis, the most common cause, I mean, the most common sort of scenario for patients in the outpatient setting, is that it's a marker of something else. That it's probably not the real cause of what's going on, but can frequently be a marker that that patient uh, about tells you something about that patient. And most mm -hmm. commonly, I would think 
the way I think of it is that fungiuria is often a, a sign of frailty. So this is very common in patients who are just who just don't have those defenses um, against infection, or they've got something in the urinary tract that's keeping it from functioning normally. And, and obviously we're all very familiar, fungiuria is very common in patients with indwelling devices like Ebola catheters or even stents. But you can also think about it as being a good sign of things like bladder outlet obstruction for non-device you know non -device causes or as a consequence of some kind of surgery on the outlet or things like that. Like those are the times when you tend to see fungiuria. So that should ask you to ask yourself what's going on with this patient I don't, and not be worried necessarily about treating the fungus, but about asking yourself, why has this patient got fungiuria? Is it just that they're really you know, debilitated or is there something actually wrong in the urinary tract that's keeping them from emptying well? And, and that, so that sort of triggers a kind of different workup for that patient. And there is one other thing that I do want to mention, which is something that kind of has, has really become more of an issue recently, which is that, as I mentioned, it's kind of this marker for frailty, but that I'm going to, I'm going to lump immunosuppression kind of in that category. But unlike some of the more atypical organisms like the viruses, you can we're starting to see more and more fungiuria in patients who I think we don't tend to think of as immunosuppressed. And that's that whole body of patients with rheumatologic diseases who are now on sort of daily immunosuppression with a lot of the, you know, the rheumatoid arthritis, the lupus, the Sjogren's syndrome. These, these patients are now on chronic immunosuppression that doesn't leave them looking like they're impaired, right? And they're not the transplant patients where you, you know, you've got the whole med list that's 800 and 800 lists long you know um but as we are seeing those increasingly commonly used in the population fungiuria is actually quite common in that group of patients so again it's more a symbol of their underlying state than it is a problem at least in the community now it's a different story when you're talking about the icu and and yeah. the patients who are you know chronically instrumented and all that kind of stuff but at least in the outpatient clinic it's very uncommon that you need to treat the fungus as the source of their as the source of their symptoms. Mostly think I think about other reasons why the fungus might be there in the first place that could also be causing their urinary symptoms. So I'm going to pivot a little bit and, and ask you what what I feel like is, is this clinical scenario that occurs fairly often, and I think always presents a conundrum to many of us, which is you have a patient, they have symptoms of an acute UTI. Um, let's even say you, their urinalysis, as you highlighted, which is an important, I think, um, additional benefit shows evidence of inflammation, white blood cells, but you get their culture and it's negative. Yeah. So what, but, but, you know, you, your spidey sense is tingling, right? It, it, it's, it, it looks like a UTI, you're seeing inflammation in the UA, the culture is negative. Should we be, are there any other reasons for that? Are there any other types of molecular testing or that we should be thinking about to look for maybe less common organisms or lower threshold organisms? How, how do we deal with this scenario? It's probably the hardest, I mean, that's probably one of the hardest situations I think we face because, you know, you have this patient in front of you, it looks so much like a UTI and, but you don't know what to treat. And I think that that again, we can come back to that. Is this the first time they've come in this way or is this the 18th? And, and I think those two scenarios are different. So let's take the first time patient. And, and, and so that with that patient, I think there's a couple of questions you gotta just take a step back and ask yourself. And the first is, 
could, if this is a UTI, are there reasons why their culture might be negative? And one of those could be, you know, they, they, they took some antibiotics they had left in their closet and didn't tell you about. And just so just, you know, go through that and just make sure that they know that you're trying to figure out how to treat them best. Just tell me if you did that so right. that I can figure right. out how to interpret my testing. Um, other things can actually be that if they have been really, you know, a lot of women when they first feel those symptoms will take a peridium and a whole bunch of cranberry and some tea manos and 18 gallons of water. And in that scenario, it's also very possible that their culture may not come back positive because they've been doing that, that treatment already, which does dilute things and, and washes the urine out. And maybe they're actually on their way to recovery already, but they're still having that inflammation and those, and those symptoms. So you don't detect it, but the symptoms are still very convincing. Um, and then lastly, you know, the other thing to think about is just, it, it, it are these atypical organisms? And so I think for me, there is, there are two equally important questions. And then one is, is there a reason why they could have had just a very classical UTI, but their culture's coming out negative? And if that's the case, you know, I think it's pretty reasonable. Again, if, if I'm coming back to that main point that UTI is a clinical diagnosis, then if your judgment and your spidey sense tells you this is an acute UTI, then go with what is recommended as presumptive treatment by the, the AUA, which is uh, nitrofurantoin is your first line if that's if that's not tolerated by the patient. I mean, if that is tolerated by the patient and you've got your trimethoprimacil and methoxazole uh, as a backup or cephalexin is your second line and phosphomycin if you have reason to suspect they could have some significant drug resistance. And, you know, just just do it. See if that makes them better because that's very reasonable to do. Um, the other part is that you asked about is could there be something sort of atypical uh, or some different organism causing their infection that doesn't come out in the urine culture. And the truth is that pretty much every test we have has some real problems and that includes standard urine culture. So while we talk about bacteriuria being this definition of greater than 10 to the five on, on a, a, a standard clinical culture, you know, the sensitivity of a urine culture can be as bad as like 50%. So it's really not that great a test. The question that you asked to follow that up of, are there better tests that we could use? Has to have a qualified maybe to it. And there, there are a, a bunch of new available tests on the market that are more sensitive and that do a better job of detecting bacterial species, particularly in that subset of patients that looks for all the world like an acute UTI, but their culture comes back negative. So things like PCR and next generation sequencing do do a better job of detecting uropathogens in that scenario. Um, and there's one study with a very few number of people, only about 20 people in each arm, that demonstrated that using this testing actually gave you better symptomatic improvements. Again, in that specific population of an acute mm -hmm. UTI with a negative culture. And so, and so maybe it actually does help. Um, and, and, and so I think if, again, if you're, if your gut says that's what this is, getting those more advanced tests is not, is not, is not a terrible idea. The thing again, to come back to is the patient who's had the 18, 18 yeah. negative cultures with these symptoms that flex, that are coming and going and coming and going. And I think the idea there is that tests like that, that are far more sensitive are likely going to detect bacteria in those patients, regardless of what their underlying cause is. And so at that moment, you have to think to yourself, if the only thing this testing is going to get me is a different antibiotic to give this patient, and I've pretty much already tried them all, 
is there really the utility of using using more advanced testing, more sensitive testing in that scenario? So let's talk a little bit more about that patient who's had the 18 episodes and maybe three of them are positive, but most of them are negative and this keeps happening and you've treated them a couple times and nothing seems to be changing. And I think that that's a very different scenario. So are there things that can cause UTI-like symptoms in with a negative culture that are not UTIs? And absolutely there are. And there is really a time, I think that, and I would say it shouldn't be after 18, it should be after two or three. Um, maybe even, and maybe even one, you know, that, that this is really something that you should be thinking about very early on in the evaluation of a patient with a negative culture, just so that you don't go down that path of six courses of antibiotics before mm -hmm. you think about doing an evaluation for other possible etiologies. And so those things are, you know, they're, the, they're common and they are, um, Sometimes very difficult to, to catch because we don't have great diagnostic testing for this. So one would be something like interstitial cystitis or a bladder pain syndrome of some variety. And as, as we probably know, um, interstitial cystitis is a clinical diagnosis as well. And one made by excluding UTIs. So there's a little bit of a circular argument there, but there, there just has to be a point at which you're suspecting something different and trying to treat something differently. Um, so interstitial cystitis is hard. Overactive bladder can actually have quite a lot of overlap. And as I mentioned earlier, those fluctuating symptoms are not uncommon. Um, patients with neurogenic bladder, maybe that's under-recognized. Uh, obviously, there's tons of things associated with, with, with other treatments. So treatments associated with cancers like radiation or chemical cystitis. Um, Ketamine can be an, un, an infrequent, but I've seen it, uh, cause of UTI-like symptoms. Um, things like bladder stones or bladder tumors, probably less common, but, but possible. Um, and obviously there's, there's a whole list of things that can also uh, contribute, but specifically in, um, in uh, patients in whom you have that positive pyuria, one thing to think about, particularly in women, are other infections of the genitourinary tract and vaginal infections, yeast infections, bacterial vaginosis, and even sort of the anaerobic vaginitis um, can present very much like UTIs and have that same dysuria, urgency, frequency, discomfort. Everything does not feel right, but the source of the infection is actually vaginal. And it can be very difficult for patients to give you symptoms that distinguish those things you know, discharge is a is a pretty high yield one that if you have discharge, that, that is a good thing to rule out a UTI and to think more along the lines of, of some sort of general infection. Um, but 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 again, it's hard. There's you know, there's a whole long list which you can find in the update series article and you can find also in numerous other guidelines like the recurrent UTI guidelines. But there's one other one that I do want to mention that I think is really critical, which is myofascial pelvic pain. Myofascial pelvic pain has this tendency to feel for a lot of patients, it, 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 it is distinguishable through history, but patients will often tell you, I have a UTI, when what they really have is myofascial pelvic pain. It is very flary, so there'll be times when it gets a lot worse, there'll be times when they feel fine. And during those times when they feel worse, dysuria can be a strong component of myofascial pelvic pain, urgency and frequency as well. And so that is something that's often difficult to diagnose without a physical exam, but, but, 
but is a big confusable disease. And so if you don't know how to do a myofascial exam, there's actually some great guidance um, from the American Neurogynecologic Society on a standardized pelvic exam and what to be looking for. But basically, you got to do a vaginal exam on a woman, you got to do a rectal exam on a guy, and you got to actually palpate those muscles and see if there's tenderness there. And that's, that's a big barrier for a lot of people, but it's something you got to be thinking about because it's a very, very common condition. And so, you know, when you take this person with, you know, multiple, not the 18, but you, you alluded to multiple <laughs> episodes, right? Right. At what point in the algorithm, just really practically speaking, do you, do you start looking at uh, testing? whether it be a cystoscopy, imaging, does that play a role? I mean, some of the differential that you listed there um, uh, are cystoscopic diagnoses, for example, CIS, for uh, bladder cancer. So yeah. at what point when you go through this, do you say, hey, we, we need to probably get a picture, we need to look at the bladder, and, and obviously we want to we want to sort of balance, you know, doing it appropriately and not doing it on everybody where, where yeah. we're probably overdoing it. What do you do in your practice? So that's actually, I actually think this is relatively simple for, and it, you know, if you, if you have a suspicion that there's something abnormal about their urinary tract, that changes the deal and you should go to sort of more testing very soon, even after that first infection. You know, if you get the history of like, oh, when I was a child, I had a massive bladder operation. They got this big scars everywhere in their belly. Like you probably want to start moving to that much sooner. Sure. Um, if they've had a history of pyelonephritis, that moves them into the complicated UTI category. And again, that changes the evaluation. But if you have a patient who comes in and they've had three uncomplicated UTIs that resolved with antibiotics, but you know, but maybe their cultures were negative or positive, you don't know. I, I think honestly, the first thing I do is suppression. So some kind of infection prophylaxis because mm -hmm. almost everybody will get better with that. And what, what tons and tons of studies have shown is that, again, that kind of index patient of the uncomplicated UTI gets better with antibiotics, 99.5% of them will have nothing at all that you find in a workup. Mm -hmm. And so what's the way to sort of get at, get it, to have a better, like you said, not over screen, but make sure that you can catch those people. And so I don't want to just keep treating their infections when they happen. I want to try to get rid of them. So when they've, you know, two or more in six months, three or more in a year, get them on infection prophylaxis. Mm -hmm. And that can include a low dose continuous antibiotic and intermittent antibiotic associated with whatever their trigger is, like intercourse, so postcoital antibiotics. It can be a cranberry extract or supplement like that, like, a, like is explored in the, in the guidelines. And vaginal estrogen for older women is a great, another option as well. Um, there's a lot more we can talk about there, but I think the point is get them on something. The guidelines, the AUA guidelines do a great job of exploring what some of those options are. If they continue to have episodes on that, then I go to a workup and then I'll, and then I'll consider, you know, probably cystoscopy and renal ultrasound to start off with. Mm -hmm. And if they have other signs or symptoms like, like straining the void or anything that's concerning for one of these other, you know, confusable conditions, I may even add on urodynamics in that patient. Got it. Well, Lenny, I really want to thank you. It's always, uh, we've done a few of these. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. You're very, uh, the way you think about it is very uh, clear. The way you uh, you speak about it is very <laughs> articulate. And it's certainly our pleasure to, to have you join us uh, on these AUA podcasts. I, I do really want to thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's lots of fun. Um, for our guests, uh, certainly thank you for your time and uh, your attention. 
uh, I would encourage you to visit us at auanet.org university. And again, uh, to hear or learn more about some of the topics that we talked about today, as well as other uh, related works, please consider subscribing to the AUA Update series for access to over 40 lessons of great content uh, every year. Thanks so much, Lenny. Take care. Always great. good seeing you. Great.